0: Welcome to the GeoMob Podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit.
1: Welcome back to another GeoMob Podcast. This afternoon, well, morning where he is, it's my pleasure to welcome Stephen Mather. Stephen was the GI manager at Cleveland Metroparks for a long time, and he built their early mobile and virtual reality apps, Now he's a sysadmin at Oberlin College, which is a fancy liberal arts college and music college. And I'm sure he'll explain to us how that connects with Geo at some stage. But more importantly for us, he was the founder of Open Drone Map and also one of the leading initiators of the human innovation, humanitarian innovation fund. So I mean, we're going to be talking drones and humanitarian mapping and stuff this afternoon, I think, Stephen. But first of all, Stephen, introduce yourself and tell our listeners a little bit about your journey in GEO.
2: Yeah, so I spent 13 years as GIS manager at Cleveland Metro Parks, which was great because it gave me the opportunity to dip my toe into all sorts of interesting GEO stuff from from mobile apps to... To early days of digital twin work that's really critical to some of the conservation work that they're doing in the parks. Started Open Drone Map as part of that work. And we were lucky enough early on to to get funding from Humanitarian Innovation Fund to continue that work. We were lucky enough to have Dakota Benjamin as a as an early contributor when when, when he was working with me before he went on to humanitarian open street map team. And then we were really, really lucky also early on for Piero Tofanin to to join the open drone map group, who's you know, sort of both Put a lot of energy into figuring out how to fund it, and been the core developer for almost the entirety of the project. So, a couple of years ago, we were discussing like you know founder status, like you know how does how does this work? Because technically, I'm the sole founder of Open Map, but Piero has like founded seven of the eight project sub projects of Open Map. and I'm just like, eh, I think I think Piero, you are the co founder of the ecosystem. And he's like, yeah, I, I like that. So <laughs>
1: yeah. I think that's great. You know, and I think there's always going to be one person who is the first, but you get very little done on your own. (laughs) Um, So recognising those people who were there at the beginning alongside you and who made such a contribution is a really great thing to do. So talk about drones. I mean, I think most of us who work in GI sort of think... Drones are interesting, they're important, they're a new technology, they're democratizing, mapping, all of that. What got you interested in drones?
2: You know, there was a, I guess it was about in 2004, I was working in advanced graduate degree in in biology, which I did not finish. I was supposed to be a PhD. And we were trying to understand how carbon sequestration works in forested ecosystems. But most of the work that had been done to really measure how uh, carbon sequestration works was, was really done in in systems that were pretty homogeneous compared to the forested ecosystems we were working in. And so as I was thinking about it, I was like, you know, it'd be really cool if we could get a camera in the air that that could really see uh, some of the some of the spectra that that tell us something about you know what's happening and at the time, of course, you know. You were lucky if you had a Landsat scene at 30 meter resolution on a semi-regular basis. You were pretty happy if you had like maybe two-foot resolution orthophotos. And and so like submeter wasn't a thing. Understanding how to connect from leaf level dynamics to entire forest was really in its infancy, and lots of people were doing some really cool stuff in that in that realm sense, but I ended up putting balloons in the air, monstrous balloons <laughs> on really strong strings with, with cameras hanging down from them, and I
1: utterly failed. <laughs> Do you mean like helium balloons? Like like helium balloons, yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so we, like kids' parties on a big scale <laughs> with a camera well, hanging off the bottom. Oh, there was
2: definitely a moment where, where there were a few dozen balloons all strapped together with a camera tagged tagged <laughs> onto the bottom of it, stuck in a tree in the middle of a U.S. Forest Service plot. <laughs> and not, not that there were any OSHA uh, safety violations, but there might have been... A graduate student standing on top of a deer stand with a pole trying to get that balloon, (laughs) that group of balloons down. But I would never confess to such a thing. No. So we we went with a much larger single balloon after that and got some really nice shots over the forest. But then realized that just the software for for taking it from from sort of individual images into geographic products wasn't there. And so then I waited for someone else to do it for about 10 years. And it didn't work.
1: <laughs> and meanwhile, presumably, at some stage, you discovered that rather than hanging cameras off the bottom of big balloons, there was a way of hanging cameras off the bottom of little helicopters and flying them around.
2: Yeah. And, I, you know, at the time I thought about helicopters, but, you know, like this was 2004. So it would have been, you know, one of those, you know, those meter, meter and a half large. I mean, it, you know, at the time, remote control helicopters were pretty large and pretty, uh, pretty difficult to control and not real great for flying in forested areas. So so there was there was lots to happen yet. 3D robotics hadn't emerged. DJI hadn't emerged. But all of that happened after and things got a lot easier cameras got smaller flying things got smaller and much easier to use and we stopped crashing them into things quite as much
1: (laughs) so did you actually get into flying drones or were you just working on the software to process the imagery with somebody else flying it
2: uh yeah oh I definitely got into flying I spent a fair amount of time flying in my mom's backyard before right. before we were legally allowed to uh, to fly for the parks I actually kicked off Open Map as Map as an internal project as a, an internally funded project prior to so 2012 comes around the US starts establishing regulations the legal framework now but you know they start getting regulations in place. Suddenly, all the things that hobbyists have been doing for years, where it's sort of on that edge of hobby and and business, then become questionable. We recognize it as an institution. We're like, well, we've got time. We're, there's no there's no overriding reason to solve the legal and regulatory side now. So we'll work on the software side, and then when the legal and regulatory framework gets easier, we'll you know we'll 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 come back to this, and it actually worked out pretty well for us.
1: Uh, presumably. I mean, one of the issues in in those early days was flying outside of line of sight. It still is, (laughs) is. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the big challenge, isn't it?
2: Uh, Or
1: or one of the big challenges.
2: Yeah, I mean, nighttime flying's gotten easier. Getting a getting a a waiver for that is not that hard. There's now frameworks in place for flying over crowds, as far as weight classes, etc. And really, that beyond beyond visual line of sight is 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 the real challenge. And I think there's there's a lot of folks who probably bend the rules in that category yeah. in order to get the job done. I think there's a fair amount of that, but. It will be really nice when, you know, whether whether it's U.S. or uh, civil aviation authorities around the world, start to figure out how they can comfortably do that.
1: Yeah, and I think we need the drones probably to get the drones to be smarter or the software that controls them to be smarter before we can do that.
2: Um, yeah, airspace integration pieces yeah. and parts is, is I think, the, the, the way forward there.
1: But also, I guess, as they get smaller and lighter, they become less dangerous. Is that right?
2: Yeah, I'm, it, you know the smaller, lighter, and depending on sort of that total momentum. You know, you get you, you like most of the ones that people are flying sort of recreationally. If they got pulled into an aircraft engine, the aircraft, I mean, compared to a compared to a, a goose, they're they're going to do no damage whatsoever. So, right there's some understandable conservatism on the parts of of the aviation re- regulation authorities in this space, but I think. From from my perspective, for most of the smaller stuff, it's pretty small risk.
1: Right. So around that time, sort of two twelve thousand and twelve ish, you started working on the software to process the imagery that you were getting from the drones that you were just starting to play around with. Is that about right?
2: Yeah, it was about twenty end of twenty thirteen, and I made a joke about uh you know custom pixels and you know c- coined the term open drone map and then realized that i was that in making the joke i had breathed into existence and that it needed to happen
1: <laughs> so so that's the ultimate vaporware give it a name and then, <laughs> give and it, then it a name
2: by a domain oh no i'm going yeah. to have to do this Oh, yeah. oh, and and oh, the, the the part that sort of ca- that, that created the casting, you know, like the, 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 that at least gave me the sand for the casting. Was the CEO said, "Okay, that's funded. Okay, let's talk about staff." <laughs> like, wait, wow, you, it's 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 funded
1: <laughs> and um, staff.
2: <laughs> well, staff, not well, yeah.
1: <laughs> so you got the funding and you had a project name and an idea, and then what happened?
2: Uh, then, then i then i realized i needed to figure out how to deliver so so over over the holidays i spent some time just sort of playing around with and trying to find a good starting point for photogrammetry software it got to the point where i had I had half of the pipeline working on one machine and half of the pipe, pipeline working on the other machine. Couldn't get the whole thing to work on both machines, but I could I could shuttle the data in between. The year unfolded, so 2014 unfolded. I sort of talked about it a little bit at Phosphor G North America in uh, in 2014, and then uh, had a fun time with Phosphor G Korea, where I didn't talk about it at all. But then came back to Portland a couple weeks later and and presented it as a project and at the end of my presentation sort of feeling definitely feeling vaporware you know okay we've got something quasi-functional there's it's an idea but it's also a, a bit of code and there's bits and pieces and oh i'm i'm gonna blank on their names though which is terrible I should have written this down but two users came what? up <laughs> it said we're stuck on this step what do you recommend it uh, wait you're using it <laughs> Oh! Oh no! Yeah, to that, it's <laughs> an internal project, so it's a little early. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's uh, Are you trying to get work done with it? Oh no! Okay, so
1: so that was a major point. Which which just makes me think of something that presumably your boss at Cleveland Metroparks had the vision and or whatever to actually okay. This software being developed as open source, which is yeah. a really cool thing, you
2: know. Yeah, it was uh, there. There wasn't is a, a tremendous amount of support for innovation at Cleveland Metro Parks, and and a lot of support for trying out an idea, figuring out whether it works, taking taking some risks, which is really unusual for a, a public entity. Like most public entities are pretty risk averse, but I think there's a sense that there are. Appropriate risks to take, and and that in doing so we can do sort of bigger, better, and more interesting things. At the time, the commercial closed source equivalent, the annual licensing fee was something like fifty six thousand dollars. That, of course, also encouraged uh, <laughs> encouraged the, the the possibility that we would do this Absolutely. as an open source project. And and the way I pitched it was, you know, hey let's let's take let's take 50 grand let's put it towards this project let's you know invite someone else with more expertise than me to also work on this and you know the the worst that we're out is no more than we would be out if we bought a year of license but more than likely where we'll get is some place that where we can Sort of collectively take it to more places and get more funding and 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 bootstrap this and and build this out as as a public good over a broader community than than we can do just within our small. Jurisdiction. And I think
1: that that you know you just used that phrase, Stephen, public good, and I think that's a really good phrase to describe this because loads of people have been looking at drones and thinking these are just what we need for low cost local surveys at relatively high resolution you know you can fly drones over a field over a over a natural feature over a flood over a fire area and you can survey them and capture all of this data the challenge has been that when you've got all that data how do you actually turn that into usable information and that's sort of what the open drone map piece does isn't it yeah yeah and it's sort of enabled this massive growth in the use of drones for small scale surveys
2: yeah you you've got this you've got sort of this this mismatch if if, if your if your software is pretty expensive and of course the proprietary stuff has come down a lot in price since uh, 2014 but if you've got a relatively low cost way of collecting the data you've got a real mismatch cost-wise if you're if you're licensing to process that data is Absolutely. through the roof and it's kind of like you know it's it's not it's not that long ago that photography was really expensive and you would be careful how many pictures you would take on your camera so that you know so that you didn't blow through a roll and 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 pay development costs uh, for stuff that you didn't want as soon as you can change those those points of friction you can do things and you can innovate and you can experiment in ways that you couldn't before and I think you know, having a having a free and open source tool for photogrammetric processing is a really important part of that that innovation portion, reducing that friction to the point that innovation is feasible to a wider range of folks. So you can have a bunch of parallel experiments happening as well, because it's not always going to be the folks who are already well resourced that are going to come up with the good ideas, particularly if just about anybody can play well, with it.
1: Well, I think we all ought to be grateful to you and to the people who backed you at the beginning For kicking this project off. So, who's using it? Give us some examples of who's using it.
2: This is always a part I'm terrible at. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But let me, let me, uh, Let's see. Uh, so, I mean, we're definitely so working with working with partners in a lot of different places. So, the Korea National Park Service is a heavy user. I think I saw some evidence. It was on some meetings. The Department of the Interior uses it heavily in the U.S. So, we've definitely got some representation on the government side of things in different places. On the NGO side, UN is now UN Open GIS is now pushing it as sort of a, a central way to do. Uh, to create a platform within the UN for processing data. Uh, So they see both the value of what's coming out of it, but also the scalability and the particular architecture of the project as core to what they need to do. And we've worked on a few World Bank projects, processing data with it. Of course, out of Tanzania is some of the largest drone civilian drone data collection processes in the world which is really <laughs> which which is really challenged how do you how do you take eighty thousand images and turn them into a single product and and all those really neat problems that come out of really cool innovative That's spaces amazing. like that so then there's a ridiculous number of commercial users and of course so, we
1: met well we met in Boston but we were both in Dar es Salaam during the time when they were flying their drones and capturing all of that data in Zanzibar, weren't we? Um, yeah. It's an so yeah, amazing story of that they mapped the whole of the island using drones, as I understand it.
2: Yeah, I think there's 350,000 images that were collected over over the archipelago. And, like, scaling that kind of effort is, is difficult to begin with. But then it's, you know, it's an island, so yeah. it's windy. <laughs> You know, you have all those. It's, uh, you know, uh, it's it's dusty because it's seasonally dry and lots of agriculture. You know, just all the all the wonderful challenges that you don't expect when you start a project like that. And it's just fun to talk to folks there and and find out what their challenges were and figure out how they scaled it. And, you know, yeah, just really cool stuff.
1: So if you were going to quote one success story from Open Drone Map, which one would it be? You wanted to give an example of the amazing things that people have done with it
2: that's a, that's a good question so many cool things I I'm gonna I I, I hate I hate to talk about something that okay I did with it but but, but you're going to but I'm going to because <laughs> But I'm going to I'm going to want to, to start there anyway maybe I'll give you okay. maybe I'll give you two or three but but one of the cool things that I've been finding with it is like the margins of where it's a what what makes it a a good good name for a project like OpenDroneMap, it's for processing drone imagery. Well, it turns out it's a good general photogrammetry tool, thanks to the fact that it's built on OpenSFM, which came out of Mapillary and which is now in Facebook. So there's like all these parts and pieces. So like, you can construct anything from it, whether it's geographic or not. So I started, you know, taking pictures of musical instruments and reconstructing them. And I think that's sort of like, there's there's some interesting sort of scan the world, whether it's geographic or not, opportunities with Open Drone Map that really sort of push that name to its to its uh, it, to the limits of its meaning, which I think is kind of cool. But if we want to talk about like global impact, like f- first in the world, nothing else like it. Uses Zanzibar Mapping Initiative is 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 absolutely at the top of that. The work that's been done in, in Dar Salaam as far as as far as mapping the city with drones. Also, absolutely fantastic. But I think probably the most interesting sort of project that that I didn't necessarily see coming was out of Kerala, India, just before the the Indian government changed their drone regulatory rules. Uh, there was a group out of International Center for Free and Open Source Software, led by Arun, with that group and and three fantastic folks mapping massive areas of wetlands. And then becoming really the first users of some of the work that we did to scale Open Drone Map to be able to handle the Zanzibar data. They were using it before we were, you know, processing, I don't, don't even remember now, but tens of thousands of images across a, a home built cluster in order to map the wetlands, a really important wetland complex in Kerala. And, uh, you know, it's one of the, one of those things where I had Freddie and from Tanzania and I had uh, had done some trainings there. And usually you do a training and, and you figure, well, they'll do some small things with it. And then they did one of the biggest things anyone had ever done. And it was just incredible to see. I was like, OK, uh, cool. And they're like, can you come back for another training? I was like, can I can I just come back and you have you trained me like (laughs) like yeah like let's go let's go go play let's 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 eat some good food and 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 fly some drones but i'm not sure how much use i am to you anymore which is really really cool cool.
1: so in your work in the field when you've been out there either flying the drones or training people is there some strange thing funny thing that happened whilst you were working in the field that you sort of always remember lots of them
2: (laughs) I will name. I, I will not name the the entity involved. Right. <laughs> but I was out. I was out actually with a with another uh, park agency that has a really great drone program. And we had a moment where the drone was in the air. We're in we're in airspace that does not require any declarations, and the drone is at roughly 120 meters, and f uh, F-16 jet comes through. <laughs> underneath I, the drone. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so you could almost touch it. Yeah yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was like
2: and so the the the, the manager on hand, uh, so the, the person the operator starts to bring it home, and the manager says, No, pause. You have vertical separation, and those come in three. And sure enough, two more jets came <laughs> through below the height of the drone. And uh you know, it's one of those times when I thought about recording it on my phone and I thought, no, you know, there's something telling me not to record this particular this particular flight. And uh, that was right. that was the right uh, that was okay. that was the right moment. So there was no legal there was no legal issue, but it was definitely a sort of a scary, yeah. a scary moment when you realize that your vertical separation is the opposite yeah. of what you want.
1: <laughs> I, I I wonder if there's a legal requirement uh, for those F-16s to be below a 100. Um, to come down as low as a hundred meters, you'd think. Uh,
2: yeah, I have no like. I, I mean, I've I've observed this other places. I, mean, I can remember being in when I, when I went to I went to school at College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor, Maine, and occasionally. And I don't remember if it was it was the Navy or the Air Force, but there there were large, rather large jets that would fly over the the mountains there. At a very low height, as part of their training procedures, and I have—I don't know whether they're required to get some particular authorization for that or not. But it was always—it was always sort of terrifying to to have like a, a larger than passenger sized jet come over the top of the mountain, it's sort of unexpected. And uh, yeah, yeah. But we weren't flying drones then, so it was a little bit less—a uh, little less adrenaline uh, inducing. Right.
1: So let's leave drones. A little bit behind us, and talk about the humanitarian innovation fund. And is it Elra or is it Elrha?
2: I don't know. They, were, they, they funded me, okay. so I never Fair asked.
1: <laughs> so, so, what is the humanitarian innovation fund?
2: So, it's kind of cool what they do. They they actually look for opportunities to fund things that otherwise are difficult to fund. And you know, I'm not I'm not in any way representative of them. So, if I get get these things wrong, I apologize. But they, you know, they funded projects like the sort of the second version, sort of the the, the rebirth of Open Aerial Map. They've funded a range of, of different really cool, innovative projects, where it's like, if we were to do this, you know, $50,000, $100,000, $150,000 worth of work, then we could really sort of bootstrap this these other opportunities, technology or with innovation within the humanitarian sector. And so I'm pretty sure Open Aerial Map, the rebirth of Open Aerial Map, the sort of current generation of work there was was funded by Humanitarian Innovation Fund. And in the early days of Open Drone Map, we were trying to figure out how do we ensure that, that this is more widely usable, that this is actually something that's useful for the humanitarian community. And so Ivan Gayton, who at the time was with MSF UK and, and some other folks, sort of came together and said, All right, we we need to figure out, like, we need to figure out what is what is the way in which this is an innovation, and we need to pitch this as, as a great innovation. And we got some really nice letters of support and wrote a really good proposal. And it was funny, there was there was some pushback initially. It was like, well, but there's already software to do this. Why is this innovative? It's like, well, yes, there is software to do this but license matters. License matters because accessibility matters. There's a fair amount of do a really special, interesting thing uh, in the humanitarian space with some proprietary software. And then it dies on the vine because it can't it can't be replicated elsewhere, or can only be replicated elsewhere through the goodwill of an organization that's willing to continually donate right. licenses. So we said, you know, the, the license is the innovation, and they agreed, which was kind of cool. So that that kind of got us uh, some momentum. And about that same time, Piero Tofanin joined the project and and started working on it. So those two things came together at the same time, which was really really kind of gave it some. And you some just momentum.
1: mentioned Ivan Gayton, which. For your benefit and for the listeners, I've got to tell one of my favourite stories. <laughs> um, you know, this is the GeoMob podcast, and the GeoMob is a meetup group in London, sometimes in Barcelona and in Munich, where somewhere 50 to 100 people will get together for an evening, listen to some talks, and then go and drink some beers. And it's always Geo stuff. And there's one of the most memorable nights that we ever had when Ivan Gayton was presenting and he he'd designed this build-it-yourself drone, which you could build from parts that you could get from Radio Shack or something like that. You know, they were all parts that you could get easily available and he could build a drone that was capable of taking a camera and capturing aerial imagery for around $1,000. So he's talking about Mm -hmm. this project, and we're in this this conference room with about 100 people, relatively low ceiling. He pulls out the drone to demonstrate it, (laughs) fires it up, and flies the drone. I mean, never mind 100 metres, never mind 10 metres, We're talking about flying a drone at two to two and a half metres above the audience sitting there. And if ever there was a moment (laughs) that you thought, this is going to go tits up, this is not a good idea, don't do this, it was brilliant. And somewhere on the internet, there is some film that people captured of that moment of him flying a drone around this conference room. Anyway, so... But it does have a connection to what you're saying because here's this guy who's working for Médecins Sans Frontières, who's working on building really low cost drones that can capture aerial imagery. And of course, if you're going to build drones for a thousand, fifteen hundred dollars that are, you know, a sort of near commercial standard, then you absolutely need low-cost software to process the data that you're getting from that. Otherwise, the whole thing's pointless. You might as well spend $20,000 on the drone if you're going to spend $50,000 on the software. So that leads us very nicely, I think, into the topic that you mentioned to me before we started and which we both feel strongly about, which is the sustainability of open-source projects, contributors, how you get people like the HIF, like you get your employers involved, and how you make these things have a life beyond the originators. Yeah. So, how involved are you with ODM now?
2: Uh, fairly involved. The last eight weeks, I haven't been right. as involved. It's the first time since since we launched the uh, community org that I actually have dozens of posts I haven't wow. read. <laughs> <laughs> but we're we're sort of. We're starting a larger discussion around, it's sort of dual-homed, right? So there's, Cleveland Mudge Parks started it, and I'm actually currently a seasonal a seasonal employee, GIS project manager, uh, finishing up a project for them right now, in addition to my duties at, at Oberlin. And the thing that we're sort of thinking through and what we've been discussing for a few years now is, should should who who should this rest with? You know, what... Is there, is there an organization that this needs to go to? Is there someone whose mission is focused on this or should this become its own sort of smaller nonprofit, just sort of holding the trademark and maintaining the community? And those questions aren't answered yet, but that's, while, while I haven't been reading as many community posts, I've been sort of doing some of the background work for figuring out where this where where it makes sense for this to land next and what does that look like so rather than being something that is somewhat ambiguously between a uh, small a local government entity in Cleveland and a commercial shop in Florida, something that actually has a formal entity and formal backing. And then that also to that question of sustainability, there's there's two parts to that, I think. One of those is who does the software belong to? So is it in the is it in the hands of of an entity that advocates for the community itself, right? And then the other portion of sustainability is is the financial question long term, where we've got fairly robust commercial, both services support side of this and, and other parts and pieces um, that are supporting the project economically. But are there other kinds of funding that that can take care of things that that can't take care of? So it's easy to get someone to pay for support. Well, <laughs> relatively easy to get someone to pay for support. It If there's new features that need developed, it's relatively easy to find a, a good entity or commercial partner to say, oh, we've got... You know, we build we build agricultural sensors. Can you can you extend the capacity of it to handle multispectral processing? But what becomes more difficult is when you need to hear you're like, well, this is a good this has been a good framework for how the project works. But we really need to rebuild the plumbing. It needs to look it needs to function exactly the same in the end, but it needs to be rebuilt from the ground up. Who's going to pay for that? And I think uh, nonprofit non-profit is, is more the sort of entity that can hopefully find ways to, to get that
1: kind of work yeah, done. The tr- I mean, my one, I, I absolutely agree with you. And I have a reservation, which is that <laughs> my reservation yes. is that there are dozens of projects like ODM, not yeah. like ODM in that they process drone software, but of that same status, you know, right. that are valuable. They are public good. They get to a size where they can keep going. You know, they can keep getting sponsors or supporters to pay for new features. There's a small ecosystem around them. But if each of those sets up as a foundation, it's an incredible overhead. You know, there's a lot of stuff being done again and again and again. And it really feels to me that we should find a way of having some kind of an umbrella in a way that, for example, the, you know, and I'm not suggesting Eclipse, but the Eclipse Foundation does that quite successfully for a number of projects, and it just feels mm-hmm. that we should do that. And at the moment, I'm not sure that OSGo actually steps up and fills that gap. It could do, but it hasn't done so yet.
2: Yeah, it, one of the that's I mean that's been part of the conversation is you know is this is this OSGo is this Eclipse is this you know could be you know. OpenStreetMap US. It could be Software Freedom Found- uh, Conservancy. And I have the same reservation about establishing dedicated a, a dedicated nonprofit for a software project. And I, I look around. I don't know what it looks like sort of in the broader landscape, but I look around Cleveland, Ohio, and I'm always unpleasantly surprised to discover another (laughs) (laughs) nonprofit and they're always doing great, great and important work, but really they, they probably should have just been a fiscal sponsorship of another organization
1: with a broader mission. Yeah. And I sort of think I've got this germ of an idea, which is that I think it's very difficult for people to support financially Open source projects. Yeah. If you want to give money to, I don't know whether you can give money to Open Drone Map easily, but I certainly could list a string of OSGO projects where it's actually bloody difficult to give them money. There isn't an entity to receive the money, there isn't an easy way of doing it. And you sort of think we need to solve that problem for more than one project. You know, it doesn't have to be, let's have a hundred solutions of how to donate money to one open source project can't we group all of the geospatial open source projects into one umbrella just at least for enabling people to make donations particularly corporate donations Mm -hmm. so i think this is a subject that's going to go on and on and i think if we're not careful we could talk for another hour about this even and but i thought we were going to solve that oh. right now
2: we we've got we've got 6
1: minutes we left we've got 6 minutes left because you'll <laughs> I've I got to kidding. tell you, you're looking at the timer and forgetting that we had a little break and this timer is Aww. post-break. So I don't think we're going to solve this now, but I'm happy to actually have that no, conversation no. with you offline because I think it is something that needs solving and it needs solving once for lots of people rather than lots of times for individual projects. So maybe that's something we can pick up on afterwards. And certainly if there's anyone listening to this podcast who wants to have that conversation with us, they should get in touch. So if they, someone wants to get in touch with you, Stephen, how do they get in touch with you? What's the best way?
2: Smather Mather. That's two Mathers. So s smathermather at protonmail.com or ping me on Twitter. Same handle. Smather
1: Mather. Okay. Smather Mather Mather. All right. I'll put those in the show notes and we'll hopefully get somebody being in touch with us. Stephen, it's been an absolute pleasure. We could have talked on for another hour, I know, but all good things have to come to an end. Thank you very much for your time this afternoon.
2: Thank you. I really appreciate it. Great conversation and I Thanks enjoy your podcast.
0: Lot. Thanks everyone for joining us today and listening to the GMR podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed the discussion Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any suggestions for topics that we should cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing events that you may find of interest. You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is geomob. You can follow Steven at Steven Feldman. You can follow me at Freifogel. You can check out Mappery at Mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode and of course, seeing you at a future GeoMop event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.